Good morning. Uh, welcome, welcome uh, Midtown Home Church and everybody watching virtually at home. Welcome in-person attenders. It's good to see uh, half of your faces again as we wrap up this uh, Advent series. Um, if you've been joining with us or following along with us, um, you'll, you'll know or you'll be reminded that we've been walking through Advent, these four weeks of Advent uh, before Christmas, um, with a series called Singing the Story. And what we're doing is, is we're actually looking at these well-known Christmas hymns, these even nostalgic Christmas songs that get sung every Christmas season, uh, and actually leaning in and, and pausing and, and saying, all right, um, what are these familiar words that we sing? What are they actually about? What are they, what are they leading us to and how they actually uh, tell us the story and lead us deeper into Christmas? So uh, tonight or uh, this morning, what time is it? Um, this morning, um, where our, uh, our song for the day is O Holy Night. Um, we're going to sing these familiar words. We, we, we've, we've been doing familiar songs each week, but O Holy Night, um, we'll sing these familiar words after the sermon. And let me just read them to you, a couple lines from the song to kind of echo in your minds the theme of the morning. Here's what the, the song says. It's a song that's several hundred years old. It's actually a French poem. It was translated into English a couple hundred years ago. Um, says this says these words, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Does anybody think the world is a weary place? And we, you know, we all kind of nod at that. I can see you smiling through your, um, through your mask that, yeah, of course the world's weary. It's 2020, but is it possible that we would actually open our eyes and our hearts to the, to the reality that maybe what's been most painful about 2020 um, is, is the fact that maybe all that's happened is we've been uh, woken up, we've been awoken up to uh, the reality that the world was already a weary place, and now we just know it. Now we just can't hide from it. Now the things that we like to distract ourselves with are now gone or not as easily accessible. And so this weary world that we, we were in before 2020 started, this weariness, the, the singer or the, the, the writer of this hymn that we sing, O Holy Night, knew that the world was a weary place. But he also says this, something happened 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem that caused this weary world, uh, gave this weary world a reason to rejoice. So what in the world is in this story, what in the world is in this song that would actually lead us to not shy away from or deny how weary the world actually is, not how weary your world actually is, but actually open us up to be able to say, but there's reason for rejoicing even though I'm weary. So we turn to scripture and, and we're going to hear about this very familiar tale, this very familiar story uh, and the reason why the weary world can rejoice, this thrill of hope that, that was birthed into time and space 2,000 years ago. So we're going to be reading in Luke chapter 2. This familiar uh, tale goes like this. In these days, or in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angel went away from them into heaven The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we turn to your word now, a very familiar story. Um, it's, it's what we celebrate this time of year, and so we are all, we are all within uh, danger of um, being numbed and apathetic for the next uh, short season because of our familiarity with this grand narrative. Would you save us from our own um, histories that thinks we know all that we need to know from this story? Would you save us from, um, because we're familiar with it, uh, we could not be changed by it uh, afresh. We come to your word because we long for an encounter with you and something mystical and magical happens when your people gather and open your word and so we're trusting that now. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would you open our ears to hear from you, our Father? We pray now also for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So perhaps uh, the most nostalgic, the most well-known of all Christmas scenes in Scripture is this tale from Luke chapter 2 with the shepherds. This is the this is what we're all familiar with, right? Like, you know, shepherds watching their flocks at night. It's what, it's what takes us back to the Christmas story. It's, it's all Christmassy. It's, it's why I'm wearing this sweater. You're welcome, okay? I asked my wife last night, can I wear this sweater to preach tomorrow? And she said, sure, you know, it's 2020. It's your own funeral, I guess. But this is, this is what I wanted to do because it's Christmassy, right? This is, this is we're, in the, we're in the fields. This is, this is the story that, uh, you know, from Charlie Brown Christmas that Linus reads that I know what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Like, let me tell you. And so this is this story we know, we've heard, we, we sing about it, we read about it, and this is what, what this whole season is about. But what is it about this scene? What is it about these shepherds being visited by the angels that the song, O Holy Night, would say there is a thrill of hope and the weary world could actually rejoice at what took place. What's happening in this story that would actually make the soul feel its worth, like we'll, we'll sing about in a few minutes. See, because as nostalgic as this scene might be, as familiar as we might be with what's going on with the shepherds and the angels and running to the manger and, and all that's happening, this is a violent scene. 
It, it's, it's a jolting scene. This, this is not chestnuts roasting over an open fire. This is not jingle bells. This is not walking in a winter wonderland. This is, this is not Christmas sentimentality happening. This is a wildly intense scene. It's jarring, actually. It's, it's got a shocking force to it that we just kind of breeze over because we read it and we dream about snow and, and reindeer and Santa, and so it just kind of becomes part of the Christmas sentiment without actually realizing what's actually going on in front of us. Because if you were a shepherd in this story, if you were living in this story, you would not think at first that this would be a nostalgic story that people would remember for millennia and go, man, isn't that so lovely and soft and cuddly? This, this, this is wildly interrupting. The, the shepherds have a, have a different reaction than we do when we hear the story. Listen to how the shepherds are described by Luke at the beginning of the story when they are apocalyptically interrupted by the angel. Verse 9 says this, just a few words in Greek. It says, and they were filled with great fear. So the Greek, the original language of the New Testament, actually it's just it's three words. Mega, phobos, phobos. That word phobos is phobos, a phobia, where we get like the word fear. They were megaly, like they were superlatively afraid, afraid. That the author, Luke, who's writing this, was like, well, I can't just say they were really afraid. I can't even just say they were like, really, really afraid. I've got to say they were like so afraid they were afraid of their fear. They were like superlatively afraid, afraid. And the, the way that Linus says it in the old King James, he actually says uh, they were sore afraid. They were so afraid their bodies hurt. Have you ever had an experience, a panic attack, an anxiety attack, a, a grief so intensely felt that your body can't help but react with it. That your bodies are always reacting to what you're feeling, that the body keeps the score and all that kind of stuff. But there's this reality that there's, there's kind of a next level experience where you're so aware of what your body is experiencing emotionally in a given moment that your body holds it in such a way that your body's in physical pain. Jesus has this happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like he's so anxiously afraid in the Garden of Gethsemane, he starts sweating blood. It's a real thing that can happen. The angels come and they appear to the shepherds and the shepherds are mega faba fabas. They are megaly afraid, afraid. They are sore afraid. Their bodies are curled over because they are experiencing such deep fear and terror. So what are they afraid of? Why does the appearance of the angel, who we'll find out is actually bringing good news of great joy. We'll talk about that. But the first appearance to them is, is not just um, oh wait, hey, we normally expect to see angels while we're watching our flocks at night. I wonder what this angel has to say. They are gripped with mega phobos, phobos. So what are they afraid of? Well, in Scripture, anytime an angel appears to someone, the first words out of the angel's mouth is always, every time in Scripture, do not be afraid. Which means the angel can tell what's going on in the recipient of their visit is fear. So however, the, however every human being reacts when an angel appears is fearful. Their, 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 their experience, they see this grand heavenly being glowing with light. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a ton of physical description, but they're immense and they're shining and they're from heaven. And so there's always this fear that comes at the physical appearance, but this is more than that. Luke tells us that this is more than just, oh, I'm scared of this giant being that's in front of me. These people are sore afraid. See, because what's going on on another level, angels are also mercenary representatives of the Almighty. When Gabriel, the angel, comes to visit Zechariah, or in Luke um, chapter 1, who's going to be the father of John the Baptist, um, 
He says to Zechariah, hey dude, I just came from the throne room. Like nanoseconds ago, I was with Yahweh himself. That's where, I, that's where I live, that's where I inhabit. I'm here on behalf of him. I bring with me the superlative strength and glory and presence of the almighty king of the universe. I represent him and I carry his force with me. And any time people in Scripture encounter the presence of God, which these angels represent and carry with them the presence of God, people on the other side are terrified of the presence of God. They're sore afraid every time. One of the most vivid pictures of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, as, as Daryl said, is the Christmas prophet. He's, he's talking so much about the coming of the Messiah. But in Isaiah chapter 6, when he's kind of getting his call from the Lord, he goes into the temple and he has this vision where the angels are, are swirling around the throne of, of, of God himself and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. And, and Isaiah just catches like a glimpse of the hem of the robe of Yahweh himself. And Isaiah's natural response, he doesn't have to tell himself to do this, his body reacts for him and he falls face down on the ground and he says, woe is me, like curse me for I'm a man of unclean lips. Like, you're so holy that what I just caught a glimpse of decimates my ego. I can't stand on my own two feet when I'm in the presence of something this holy because, according to Scripture, and Isaiah is the picture of this, but the shepherds are, are reproving this for us, being in the presence of the holy always exposes the unholy in us. Guaranteed. It's why the shepherds are so afraid. The holy always terrifies the unholy. Why? Later on, actually in the very next section, the story of Simeon, which Daryl talked about last week, Simeon is with Mary and Joseph, and he is, is at the temple when they're coming to dedicate baby Jesus, and Simeon comes up and he has some words to say to Mary and Joseph, like, this is, the, this is the Messiah, I'm so glad I can die in peace now. And then he has some final words for Mary and Joseph, and he looks right at them, and he says, he's telling them some reasons why he knows the Messiah has come and what the Lord plans on doing with the Messiah's arrival. Listen to how Simeon closes his blessing to Mary and Joseph when he's talking to them about why the Messiah has come. He says, for this Messiah's coming, he has come so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. So the Messiah came so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. That Greek word thoughts that Simeon uses in what the Lord came to reveal, what the Messiah has come to reveal, is a Greek word that means like the innermost thoughts, like the deepest thoughts a person can have. And anytime the Bible uses that word, it's not talking about the pretty butterfly thoughts. It's talking about the deep, dark thoughts that people have. And Simeon says the Messiah came to expose those. The Messiah came to reveal those. Not like put them on a billboard or put them on the five o'clock news. The Messiah came to reveal those to you. Part of the Messiah's coming was to show you what's going on at the deepest part of you, the part that you want no one to see, the secrets that you've kept, the place that you try to hide and act like isn't there. The Messiah goes, yeah, I'm coming to shine a light on that place. I want to reveal the deepest, darkest, innermost thoughts to you. Like the evil thoughts, the wretched thoughts, the vile thoughts. Simeon just said, the birth of the Messiah, in part, was to come and shine a light on those places inside of you, the deep innermost places. Like, Jesus knows the conversations you have with you. 
He actually knows the things you think about, the things you fantasize about, the things you fantasize about doing to other people, the things you fantasize about saying to other people. He knows all the things that are going on in the place that nobody can see. Simeon said, yeah, Messiah is here, and part of why he came is to expose that place in you for you. That Jesus came to know you deeper and more intimately than anyone has ever known you. That we've all got secrets, and so much of our life is trying to actually hide those secrets and pretend like those secrets aren't there, or do enough like behavior management to where people would think, I don't have secrets anymore. The thoughts beneath all the other exterior stuff. Simeon said, Messiah came to expose that place. Like, I'm not talking about the acts of sin that you and I commit that people can tell. Like, the, the things that people would look at you or look at your life if you told them how you spent your week, and they would go, well, yeah, that was a mistake, and that was a mistake, and you shouldn't have responded that way, and you shouldn't have done that thing. What Simeon is talking about that the Messiah came to do is the dark thoughts that happened before you ever committed any exterior sin. Meaning before you and I ever commit any act of sin, we have an innermost dark thought that believes something else first. That whenever you and I have a fit of rage, that rage that comes out, before we can act in rage, we actually have to believe deep down within us that my kingdom, my world is the most important thing in the room and someone is disrupting that. And if you're disrupting my kingdom, you're going to get my rage. So before my kids or my wife or my friends ever get my rage, I've believed first that my kingdom matters more than anything. Before I ever act out sexually, we have to actually first think that the love that Jesus has for us is not enough to satisfy us. That before we would ever go to our favorite vice, we've actually believed I can't be satisfied unless I run to my favorite numbing mechanism or my favorite coping mechanism. Before we ever act out in greed, you and I have to first have the thought that what I currently have isn't enough and I have to go get more than what I have. Whatever the exterior vice of choice is for you, however you um, spend your time and the, the acts that you feel guilty or convicted of, please know the Bible does not play games and knows that whatever is causing you to run to those things is the thing that Jesus came after. Simeon says that the Messiah came to expose the innermost thoughts and reveal them. And the more light that gets shined on our innermost thoughts, the darkness inside of us, here's what we begin to realize. It's not just that I'm selfish. It's not just that I have issues. It's not just that deep, dark things go on inside of me that I don't want anyone to know. Here's what else gets revealed the more that the Messiah shines the light and reveals those things to me. Here's what we also have to come to grips with. I'm powerless to do anything about that place. I can't change me. And all the, the, the sin beneath the sin, the roots of the tree of sin in my life, those roots go way down, like I'm crooked deep down, and I can't uproot them on my own. And so there's a powerlessness when we have to face our innermost thoughts. There's a vulnerability down there. And, and Simeon says, yeah, the Messiah came to expose that place in you and in me. The presence of the holy always exposes the unholy. And that's what's happening to the shepherds here. And they are sore afraid. Wouldn't you be? 
If you were standing in the hillside of Bethlehem that, that evening and, the, and the, the heavenly host was with you and you were feeling the presence of the Almighty, the presence of the Holy, and you couldn't help in that presence feel all the unholy in you and you couldn't get away from it either, there was nothing to run to because you were surrounded by the holy in that moment, wouldn't you be sore afraid if all you could think about was what that holiness was doing in, into your unholiness, what it was bringing out? We would be decimated. We would be like Isaiah in the temple. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Cursed be me. I don't deserve to live anymore if this is what holiness is because that's not in me. So that's how, they, that's how the shepherds start this story, but they don't end there. Something happens to them. Listen to how the shepherds are described at the end of the story. Verse 16 says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told them concerning the child. And then verse 20, And the shepherds returned, meaning like they're walking through Bethlehem back to their post, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Okay, so we meet the shepherds and they are sore afraid. They are afraid, afraid greatly. Their, holy, their unholiness is being exposed by holy. And then they leave praising and rejoicing and like skipping back through Bethlehem. So what happened in between? There's not an ounce of phobos in them at the end of the story. They have been exposed. They have been decimated. But they leave skipping through Bethlehem telling everybody they can about what they just saw. How do the shepherds move from being sore afraid to rejoicing and praising and worshiping God? Well, we'll sing about this in O Holy Night. It, it comes out in our song, but the song is based on the story. Listen, listen to one line, the one line from the angel chorus that shifts everything for them. Remember, they've just been exposed because you can't help but be exposed when you're in the presence of the holy. And then hear what the angels say in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So Christmas is all about the announcement of peace. And it's very fitting because Jesus' life was all about the announcement of peace. If you read his life accounts, his biographies in the gospel of how he spent his earthly time He's going around healing everybody and, and, and healing diseases and forgiving sins and, and restoring sight to the blind and making the lame walk and loving the leper. And he's, he's doing all these glorious things. And whenever he has, almost every time he has a personal encounter with someone and that encounter is over or he does the healing or he does the forgiving and, then he, and, he, and he's about to be separated from that person, he always ends with these words, peace be with you. And then after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and he, and he appears to the disciples in the upper room, they're also very afraid, um, that he appears to them in the upper room. The first words out of a resurrected Jesus' mouth to his disciples is, peace be with you. That peace is announced at his birth. He was telling everybody to go in peace. And then he says, peace be with you to the disciples as his first resurrected message to them. It's like peace at the beginning, peace in the middle, and peace at the end. That one of the threads you could certainly pull on for the, for the ministry of Jesus and the life of Jesus is he came to bring and announce peace. Peace on earth. The advent of Jesus means peace. The Christmas story is all about the arrival of peace. 
So I was watching Home Alone uh, a few weeks ago to kick off the Christmas season, because it's awesome. And I do that every year with my kids, and I love it, love watching it with them. I have all the feels uh, surrounding that movie. It's, it's awesome. John Candy, by the way, is the Christ figure in that movie, if you weren't sure. Um, go watch it again. You'll see. He's the Christ figure. Comes to take people home unexpectedly. It's amazing. Now we're on a rabbit trail. Polka, 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 king of the, polka, king of the Midwest. Yes, no. Okay, so moving on. So um, I'm watching Home Alone with my kids and um, having all the feels. I love it. You know, I'm wiping tears at the end. Somewhere in my memory is playing and I just, all of it. You know, I'm, anyway. So uh, my kids, we own it on iTunes. And my kids see like the extra features and they want to watch some of Like, oh, let's click, let's see what else we can watch. Um, so there's all these deleted scenes on there. So we're watching through some of the deleted scenes, you know, some of the pranks that he doesn't pull and all that kind of stuff. There's this deleted scene in, in the Home Alone deleted scenes where, and if you're not familiar with the story, someone has left home alone, a little kid, and uh, his family's in Paris for Christmas, and this scene takes place in Paris. One of his sisters gets up in the middle of the night and is coming to talk to their dad, and they're so scared of, like, what's happening to Kevin back home, and is he going to be okay? And she says to her dad, I'm so sad we're not going to all be together on Christmas this year, and he says, why, sweetie? And she says, well, dad, that's what Christmas is all about, that even if you don't like each other and you're mean to each other and you don't talk all year, families have to be together on Christmas and be kind to each other. That's what Christmas is all about. Okay, so um, let me just ask this question. Glad that scene was deleted. Would have ruined the movie. Because here's, here's the point. Did Jesus come to announce peace at Christmas so that we could pretend like everything's okay for one day a year? Like, Life is miserable, weary world is happening, there's strife in relationships, but on Christmas we get to pretend like everything's fine, Dad. Even if, even, if the, even if the whole year's been terrible, and even if there's so much heartache here, that on Christmas we put all that aside and we eat ham and we open presents and we act like everything's good. Is that what the angels were talking about? Is that what the, glory to God in the highest and you can pretend like there's peace once a year? Or is something deeper going on? That is the peace Christ brings way deeper than that. And maybe more importantly for us, how does that peace, like something that's not cheesy, shallow, hallmark Christmas movie peace, how does something that's real actually begin to reign in us? How does something that's real like that, that the angels came to announce, actually begin to get into us? What is this peace that Christ brings at his first advent? Well, here's the simplest definition for peace. And again, biblically, this idea of like peace on earth is massive. Shalom from the Old Testament, like the reign of peace. Like this is, this is, a, this is a huge biblical concept. So don't mean to oversimplify it, but here's what, here's what we see happening to the shepherds as one, one thread of the peace that Christ came to bring. Because I don't mean to be oversimplistic, but here's what, here's what biblical peace is. Here's what it means. Peace means no war. And that may sound oversimplistic or that may sound like it's been dumbed down, but if you actually understand what it's talking about, then it actually gets to go way deep in and begin to take, take shape and actually breathe us into life again, that peace means no war. Meaning kingdoms are at peace not only when there's no war, when there's no threat of war, when the enemies have been so defeated and so crushed that there's not even a threat of hostility to come into the kingdom anymore because there's peace. There can't be peace if the enemies are mounting another attack. There isn't peace when a battle's been won. There's peace when a war's been won and the enemy's been crushed. Peace is this experience of tranquility and calm that comes from knowing that there is no 
war to fight anymore because the kingdom is secure and the enemy has been defeated once for all. If there's even a threat of hostility, if there's even a threat of enemies on the battle lines, there is no peace. But the angels here come and announce peace on earth. They don't say, hey, peace for a couple minutes, enjoy it while you can, because war is coming again and we gotta be ready for the next one. They say peace on earth. They say Jesus came to bring peace. Okay, so the angels have come to announce that Jesus peace, brings peace on earth. But Simeon says in the very next chapter, this same Jesus came to expose your innermost thoughts to you and reveal to you what's really going on in you and get way down into the darkness and show you what's going on in there. So how in the world can those two things coexist? How can he actually come to expose our innermost thoughts and how can he come to bring peace? Sounds like he's starting a war. But Jesus' mission was actually all about ending the war. Jesus' mission was about ending the strife, ending the hostility that stood between he and you. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter five. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Do you know that the blood of Jesus bought you peace? Do you know that the blood of Jesus ended the war between you and God? That Jesus, yes, came to expose the real you. He came to show you your innermost thoughts. He came to shine a light on all the darkness that's in you. But he came to expose the real you to show you that he has also justified the real you. He didn't come to justify the you that you wish you were. He didn't come to justify the you that you show everybody else that you are. Jesus came to justify the real you with all of your darkness and all of your fantasies and all of your secrets that when you stand before a holy God now, all of those things get brought to light, all of your fantasies and all of your sin and all of your desires and all of your exposing nature that shows you what a vile creature you are and the things that you can imagine doing and the things that you have to think about before you ever commit any sin, all of that is laid before the table. The one that actually knows I can't stand before holy God, that one, that the real you is brought out and here's what Jesus says when that guy or that girl's on the table, he says, justified. I don't hold any of those sins against them. But if we spend all of our time trying to hide that part of us and act like the deep, dark, innermost thoughts aren't the real us, we'll never know the joy of the peace that comes from being justified by Jesus. That yes, did he come to expose the innermost thoughts of you? Yes, because that's the you that he's justified. That all the striving we do to bring peace to our standing with God, all the proving, all the self-hatred, all the self-loathing, all the new promises we make, all the fighting we do to create a peace of conscience, all of it is fighting a war that has already been won. If there's peace, there's no war. And if you've been justified by Jesus, there's peace. But we think we hear the war horns blowing, we think the sirens are calling, we think we have to bear arms and pick up and fight a battle. And here's typically where my battles, and I would imagine your battles, uh, call you. 
Here are the places where your enemy taunts you and tries to tell you that there is still a battle to fight. Here are the places, here are the ways in which, even though Christ has won your peace for you, even though you've been justified by faith in Jesus, and Jesus looks at the real you with all the innermost thoughts and says, justified, there's peace, there's no war, God's not angry at you anymore. Even though all that's real, here are the places where we tend to still fight a battle or think that a battle has to be fought. We go through all the time dimensions. I'm not talking about like tenant or something like, you know, all the, I'm not getting into any of that. I'm talking about we live in one of three places, our past, our present, or our future. And it comes to us in the past and our past sins taunt us. Past sins, maybe from 15 years ago, maybe from 15 minutes ago. Because you, you haven't sinned in the future yet, you will, but our, your sin is only being taunted at you in the past. Your past sins come and tell you that if the real you was actually known, everybody would leave you and Jesus certainly would be disappointed in you. He is disappointed in your past and so our past sins, that they would find us out, that taunts us and tells us there's no peace in our past. And then we have this present experience of pain and shame and suffering and sometimes the pain and the shame gets so great that we believe there's no way I could have peace in the middle of the wars that I'm fighting right now and so there's no way that peace could actually be mine. There's no way there's actually peace on earth right now for me because the pain and the suffering and the taunting is too great in the present. And then we turn and we look at our future and it's full of fears. How's everything gonna work out? Is everything gonna be okay? How do I know what's gonna happen to my kids or my spouse? How do I know that all this is gonna work out and we have no idea because we're not living in a future yet, we're living here and tomorrow has a ton of anxiety. So we live in our past and we live in our present, we live in our future and all of them come at us and they say, there are so many wars to fight. You've gotta fight your past sins and make sure you pay for those and make sure you know that, that you've been sorry enough for those and that you have to make sure those never find you out and you've gotta have the right conversations and maybe even move towns. Maybe you need to even need to leave because past sins from here could find you out. Or maybe the present pain and suffering is so great right now and you're so miserable and so discontent right now with what's going on in your life, you think, if I don't, if I don't keep fighting this war right now, I will never have peace in the present because it's too much to bear right now. Or maybe you spend most of your time into the future and you see, I have no idea how all this is gonna work out. I have no idea how my kids, how I'm gonna guarantee my kids' future. I can't stop a pandemic from happening. I don't know if I have enough money. I don't know if, any, if this relationship will ever be healed. I don't know how this is all gonna work out. And so I can't live in the past or the present because I'm too busy living in the future and there's no peace there either because I can't control how that's gonna go down. But the victory of Jesus has claimed and declared and won peace for you in every dimension of time for your life. That he actually looks at your past sins and he says, I paid for all of those. I paid for all of them. I've already paid for your present and future sins too so that when they become past sins to you, you can know that they've already been paid for. I don't hold them against you. I don't treat you like you've even committed them. And your present pain and suffering is so great that you think there's no way I could have peace right now, but I'm actually with you in your present pain and in your suffering, and I am your peace with you. And I've actually so secured your future, Christian, Jesus has so secured your future by his blood and by his coming of bringing peace, your future is so certain. The worst possible outcome for your life, the worst, is eternal bliss. It's the worst that could go down for you, is eternal joy that no one can take from you where all of your tears turn into joy. That's the worst that awaits you. So your past has been taken care of, he's with you in your present as your peace, and your future is more secure than you can even imagine. He's telling you there are no wars to fight. There's peace. There's not even a threat of an enemy. 
Now, the enemy comes and tells you there's threats and you have, to, you have to get really busy and you have to get really restless because there's no peace until you do something more. But Jesus says there's no, there's no war to fight there. You can put down your sword. You can unclench your fists because no time domain can threaten the peace that he's won for you. It's not that there won't be things to fight for. Christians, yes, we fight for things. We fight for justice. We fight for peace in our neighborhoods. We fight for our marriages. We fight for our kids' lives. We fight, we fight for all these things. But the Christian fights these wars knowing that we stand in a place of perfect peace. We fight any battle we have to fight knowing that the ultimate war has already been won. So we enter all of our battles at peace and in peace, knowing that no matter how this goes down, no matter how these circumstances play out, none of it can threaten my ultimate peace. Christ has defeated all the enemies that threaten us. He has overcome the world, John 16 says. And you will have to fight for things in this life, but none of the wars that you fight can threaten the peace that Jesus has won for you. And here's where it goes even next level. The peace that Jesus fought for and won for you, that God was the one that actually initiated the making of peace with his enemies. Meaning this, God wanted peace with you more than you wanted peace with him. He wanted it so much that he actually made it happen, fought the war himself, was victorious, and then gives you the victory as if you won it. The offended party initiated the making of peace with his enemies. You didn't fight the battle that won your peace. He did. And he didn't even need your help doing it. He cared more about your peace than you did. Which means this. Gosh, if what you've heard so far you think is good news, then, it, then I'm, I'm about to take you to the next level because it gets even better than the good news that there's peace between you and God. Here, here's, how, here's how cosmically true this is, and it actually comes out in what the angels sing on the hillside in Bethlehem. Not only are you at peace with God, meaning not only is he not angry with you anymore, not only is there no war to fight here, not only is there peace between you and God, God is at peace with you. Let me explain that. The angels say it better than I did. They say, glory to God in the highest and on, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. And as soon as I say that, you go, well, yeah, but not what I did this week. Or he couldn't be pleased with the whole real me because he doesn't know what's actually going on. No, 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 no. Remember, Messiah came to expose the innermost thoughts. He knows. He knows the darkest place in you, and guess what the angels just said? He's pleased with you. Because of the blood of Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He's eternally pleased with you. Meaning, the way you came in here this morning with the record that you're weak was the way you came in here this morning with the burdens you're carrying, the, the things that you're frantic about, the things that you think have to change before you could ever experience peace, God is not frantic about those things. God is at peace with you. He's pleased with you. Not the you that you show everybody else, not the you that you're trying to prove that you are, not the you that you used to be or the you that you hope to be. God is pleased with the real you because of Jesus. So I spent this last week in quarantine because I was exposed two weeks ago, which quarantine is like the fourth layer of hell for an Enneagram 7, just letting you know. It's awful. It actually wasn't. It was actually great. I watched Star Wars for the first time ever. Don't want to talk about it. 
okay? I'm kidding. It was great, though. But here's what, here's what began to settle in. When I wasn't reading or when I wasn't walking my dog or when I wasn't watching Star Wars, um, here's what began to settle in in the quiet. And I, I, I've been a Christian my entire life. I have, I have heard the good news of the mercy of Jesus, that God is at peace with me my whole life. And here's what I cannot put to bed. I still don't get it. God is really pleased with you, Elliot. And it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. God is pleased with you. And I just don't get it. Here's how I know I don't get it. That I actually believe when I come to him in prayer, or I come to spend time with him, or I come to be with him, I actually am pretty restless about it. I can't actually be still with him because I think there's something to prove to him. But if he's at peace with me, guess what I can do? I can just be with him. Do you know fathers and mothers, do you know parents, one of the greatest gifts you can give your kids is the gift of just being bored with them? Because it means you're at peace. It means there's nothing to do, there's nothing to prove. We can just be bored together. It's actually the height of intimacy that we can just be together. But as parents, we're restless and we, we feel like, oh, we have to be doing something fun or entertain them or put on a show or make sure we're asking some provocative question to get to a deep place. When God says, I'm, I'm actually so pleased with you, there's no agenda for our time together. I, I just want to be with you. I'm already pleased with you. You don't seem very pleased with you. Can we talk about that? That actually for you to actually not be able to be still with me means that you aren't, you're so unpleased with how you are, Elliot, that you actually think your opinion of you is more important than my opinion of you. Because he said he's pleased with me. But if I'm not pleased with me, then I can't sit still. But if there's nothing to prove, if there's no growth plan, if there's no achieving, or, or if there's no failure of mine to justify before him because it's already been justified by the blood of Jesus, if there actually is peace between me and God and God is at peace with me and he's pleased with me, then I can be still with him. I can be bored with him. The serenity of this is otherworldly. That God doesn't view you the way that you view you. And so maybe the, the greatest gift you could ask the Lord for this Christmas is this. Jesus, would you help me view me the way that you view me? Because you seem to have way more peace about me than I do. Would you actually give me your eyes to not just see me the way that you see me, but to see everyone in my world the way that you see them? Give me your eyes, because Jesus is saying there's peace because of Jesus. There are no war horns blowing. There are no swords to pick up, because he's already won the war. He's already ended the hostility. He's at peace with us, and he's pleased with us. And here's how we know how big of a deal this is. Like, we may hear this and we go, man, that's amazing, but is, that, is it actually true? Like, like, I know, yeah, okay, so the angels said it, but like, can we actually believe it? Here, here's how we, here's like the huge stamp in the story. Here's the gavel coming down. Here's the mic drop of the story that actually like cements the message of the story that he's at peace with those with whom he is pleased because of the work of Jesus. Verse 13 says this, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. A multitude of the heavenly host. So I had some time this week. Um, and so I went on a little biblical rabbit trail. 
that when it says in there, a multitude of the heavenly host, how many angels are we talking about? Like, how many, how many angels came to the hillside in Bethlehem that night? Because that term, heavenly host, is used when it's talking about, like, the angels of heaven. It's actually that, that term, host, is a, is a military term. It's like, it's a designator of, like, a large, almost incalculable number of troops in an army, is what that word means. It's a, it's a military designation of, like, lots and lots of troops. So the heavenly host, the heavenly armies, we're not just told that one host was there, it was a multitude, which is like more than just a few, multitude of heavenly hosts. So many, 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 many gatherings of army men. So how many angels are we talking about? Well, go with me, there's a point here. Uh, so, so the book of Hebrews, opening chapter of the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews is actually trying to prove to the reader in the opening lines that Jesus is superior to the angels, that he's greater than even the angels. And one of the ways he does that in the opening verses is he's saying, because angels worship this guy. The angels know that Jesus is better than them, so we should know that too. Angels worship this guy. And he starts quoting, or the author starts quoting Old Testament passages, and he, and he quotes this. He says, because it is said, when God brought his firstborn into the world, he said, let all of God's angels worship him. So all of God's angels were worshiping him that night? Okay, so how many is all, how many is all of the angels? Revelation chapter 5, John has this vision. Again, there's tons of symbolism in it. It's not all literal at all. But John does say some things that he saw in his vision, and he, he gets this glimpse in Revelation chapter 5 of all the angels, and John doesn't try to start counting, but here's how he tries to astronomically communicate how many angels he saw. He gives numbers. 10,000 times 10,000 times 1,000 times 1,000. Anybody got their TI-83 out to do that real quick? Hundreds of millions of angels. Were they all there in Bethlehem? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I know this, Luke is trying to communicate a multitude of armies of angels. So like I said, I watched Star Wars this week. All of it, well, I skipped a couple. Don't judge me. Get off your high horse. Okay, we'll talk about it, which ones I skipped. But um, I skipped two and three, okay? Get off me. But here's, here's what it here's in, 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 uh, in uh, episode nine, right, Rise of Skywalker. Uh, there's this scene where Poe, the pilot, Right, they're like they're wondering. They're they're fighting the dark forces and the, and the dark side, and the, and like they're wondering, is any of the resistance going to come to our aid? Like we've put out this APB, we need everybody in the galaxy to come and help us for this final battle. And Poe, they don't think anybody's heard the call or nobody's answering the call for the resistance to come join them for this final scene. And Poe hears something and he flies up in his spacecraft, and and he flies up and he turns and he looks and it's like, poof. you guys remember that scene? No, because you've never seen it. Like me, I know, I'm sorry, I've never seen it either. I'm not judging you. Uh, but, but there's this like, literally you cannot count how many, how many entities are in the, in the skies. Same is true at, at you know, in, uh, Endgame, the Marvel, the Avengers Endgame, at the, that final battle scene where it's just like, like all the people are coming into the, in, through, the, through, through the, the ether and coming to fight at the end. I don't know how many angels were there. I know this, I know Luke used a lot of superlative language. A multitude of heavenly hosts were there. Innumerable angels in the theater of heaven. And so here's what I want to ask you. Was that a giant waste of resources for the Lord to do? 
Why are all of these angels appearing before a bunch of no-name, dirty, inconsequential shepherds outside Bethlehem thousands of years ago? Like, God, if you're gonna pull out all the stops, if you're gonna let the big guns show, if you're gonna, like, if you're gonna, if you're gonna let it all fly, why, why would you, what are you doing? Like, you're spending all of the angels' energy into this one place for, for just a few minutes to say one line? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Unless we don't get something like the angels got something. Because in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter spends the first like 10 verses of chapter 1 talking about the gospel. Let me tell you all that the, the triune God has done for you. Let me, let me just over and over and over again tell you about the, the glory that awaits you. And let me tell you about what's coming. Let me tell you about what he's done. Let me tell you about forgiveness. Let me tell you about mercy. Let me tell you about your future. And then he says at the end of that, he says, for into these things angels long to look. Meaning that if you, if you were going to say, hey, angels, hey, angelic being, what's like the one thing that you get giddy about? What's the one thing like a little boy waiting for his dad to come home that you, like he can't wait, he's like peering on his tippy toes, like when's it going to happen? Angel, what causes you to rejoice exuberantly? What causes you to not be able to contain your joy and your praise and your, and your wonder and your excitement? What is it that makes you actually say, I've got to go be, the, I've got to, I can't wait to see this happen? That term, angels long to look, is literally like appearing into, like, I, I'm just fighting to get, a, to get a sight. Can you imagine the hundreds of millions of angels, like, crawling over each other in the heavenly theater going, I can't believe this is happening. What are they longing to look into? They wanted to be a part of the holy night, of the story of a God who comes at Christmas to expose and to cover his people's sin. The night divine, or the coming of the Messiah who would come to bring peace through the war that he would fight and he would win. The dawning of the day where God himself burst into space and time to bleed for his enemies and to tell them there is peace. The night to announce peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. What a holy night indeed. May the weary world rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we're about to sing that um, many night, many many years ago, on a night in Bethlehem, um, the soul felt its worth. And I don't know all the stories in here, but I know enough of the stories in here to know that we live many days like our soul's not worth much. There's a lot to prove. There's a lot to buy. There's a lot to secure. There's a lot of believing there isn't any peace to be had. So holy Jesus, um, holy God, would you give us your eyes? Would you let us, even just for a few moments, I know it's sacred, it's almost too good, it's almost too tender to touch, but would you for a few moments let us see ourselves the way that you see us, we pray. We ask all this in your name, Jesus, amen.